Chapter 26 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by L. Machina. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 26 Electricity in the Coal Mine. Edward I prohibits the use of coal. Early ideas of getting at the coal. First attempts in using machinery underground. A trip down a coal pit, electric light and haulage underground, the employment of ponies underground, electric coal cutters at work, men go with a powerful machine along a narrow passage only 18 inches in height, is the miner deprived of employment by labour-saving machinery, the application of electricity enables old mines to be reopened and worked at a profit. We are all very familiar with that mineralised vegetable matter to which we give the name of coal, and no one needs to be informed that it is found embedded in the earth in large layers or seams, but a few introductory remarks may be of interest. Although the ancients knew of the existence of coal, and were aware that it would burn, they did not seek to make any practical use of it, as there was plenty of wood to be much more easily obtained. The introduction of coal, or as it was at first called by Londoners, sea coal, because it came to them by the sea, met with great opposition. A few years before the Battle of Bannockburn, we find Parliament successfully petitioning King Edward I to prohibit the use of coal in London, as the citizens were offended at the sulphurous smoke and savour of the firing, and at a later date we find that the nice dames of London would not come into any house or room where sea coals were burned. With the increase of industries, such as iron smelting, it became almost a necessity to make use of coal, as the country's forests were quickly disappearing. One quotation from an interesting tract written in 1629 will serve to show how the matter then stood. An ironmaster in the neighbourhood of Durham is accused of having brought to the ground above 30,000 oaks in his lifetime, and if he live long enough it is doubted if he will leave so much timber in the whole country as will repair one of our churches if it should fall. It was not, however, until the 18th century that coal came to be used in iron smelting. The invention of the steam engine gave a great natural impulse to the use of coal, for it not only became a large consumer, but it also made the winning of coal from the bowels of the earth a much easier task. The first idea of obtaining coal was to open up the ground as is done in a stone quarry, then followed a system of tunnelling into the bottom of a hill in which seams of coal were known to exist. Obtained in this way, the early coals would be of inferior quality, being taken from near the surface, so that the stench complained of may have been greater than the smoke to which we are now accustomed. It was soon found that the best seams of coal were buried too deep in the earth to be got at by the opening up of the ground, and there was nothing for it but to dig a deep hole or pit down which men might be lowered into the earth. Mines have been sunk as deep as 3,490 feet, or considerably over half a mile down below the surface. The seams vary from a few inches to more than 30 feet in thickness. Coming to a seam of coal, it is the duty of the miner to cut away the black diamond and send it to the surface, and it is in connection with the cutting of the coal that electricity is already playing a most important part. Till quite recently, it has been necessary to do all the hard work by manual labour, because of the difficulty of carrying energy to any mechanical appliances deep down in a mine. Attempts were at first made with long connecting rods or shafts from an engine on the surface, reaching down to the bottom of the pit. In some cases, even engines and boilers were placed away down in the earth. More recently, compressed air was used, and is still in use. But what a stride we have now made in being able to carry electrical energy from the surface, along a stationary wire, away down into the mine, and into the most awkward coal seams, there to drive a motor attached to a machine. 
As it is not convenient for everyone to visit a coal mine, it may be of interest to give a brief description of the different ways in which we find electricity serving the miner. Having gone by train into the country, the visitor makes his way to the pit head, where he finds an engine house in which an engine is driving a dynamo and generating current. He first of all notices a cable stretching from the engine house away across the fields, and he learns that this cable is conducting current to an electric motor, placed on a riverbank about a mile distant, and that the motor is there driving a pump which, in turn, is forcing water from the river through a pipe to the engine house. Instead of having a small engine and boiler at the river with someone in attendance, this little motor, quite unattended, is under entire control from the distant engine house. In a separate building, the visitor finds another engine, or it may be an electromotor, for raising and lowering the cages in the pit shaft, and if he is of nervous temperament, he may drop a hint to the engine driver that he has no desire to feel the sensation of flying down the pit shaft at full speed. Getting onto the cage, the novice is warned by the manager to take a good grip of the iron bar overhead, and as soon as he is plunged into darkness, he is rather alarmed, if it be his first experience, to hear a sudden deafening clatter immediately overhead, which he is informed is caused by the policeman, this name being given to a very heavy trap door which falls over the pit mouth as soon as the cage enters the shaft. It seems a long journey to the pit bottom, but the engine driver is putting the stranger down more cautiously than he does the experienced miner. If the pit be one of 2,000 feet in depth, the visitor welcomes the bump which assures him he is at the end of his downward journey. If the explorer has expected to find himself in a large, spacious underground coal quarry, he is disappointed. Even if the mine be an important one, there is no more open space in the pit bottom than one finds in a large room, and from this space a number of tunnels or roads lead off in different directions. The coal here has not been touched, except to make these passages through it, for it is necessary to leave the earth as solid as possible all around the pit shaft. No matter how valuable the coal seams may be, the miners must travel two or three hundred feet along these main roads before they touch any coal. Footnote. The descriptions refer to the working of a mine on what is called the long wall system, consecutive slices being taken off the whole face of the seam. End of footnote. Before setting off to explore the mine, the visitor is attracted by the noise of machinery, and in this particular mine he has no difficulty in finding his way about, as the bottom and the main roads are equipped with incandescent electric lamps, connected to the dynamo above ground. He finds the noise to come from a room close to the pit bottom, where an electromotor, also connected with the dynamo above ground, is driving a number of large drums, each of which is hauling in or paying off a long wire rope. Each of these haulage ropes passes right along one of the main roads, lying between the rails of a narrow-gauge track, so that the little trucks, called hutches or tubs, may be hauled to the pit bottom and then sent up the shaft to be unloaded. The motorman has a series of electric bells of different sounds, each one representing a different road, and as two bare wires are led along the roof of each main road, the miner can make the wires touch each other at any place, and thus signal to the motorman to haul in his trainload of coals. Touching the wires together is equivalent to pressing a bell push. In this case, the electromotor is stationary, and merely hauls in the wire rope, thus propelling the hutches, but in some mines, such as American drift mines, where an inclined tunnel is run into the mine instead of a perpendicular shaft, the motor may be carried on a small truck, thus forming a miniature locomotive, and receiving power from a fixed conductor overhead, just as an electric tramway car does. Ponies are still used underground for hauling the hutches along the side or branch roads to the main roads, and at present it looks as though these could not very conveniently be replaced even by electricity. But it is quite a mistaken idea to suppose that these ponies are blind, or that they are in any way ill-used. 
My experience on visiting mines, where sometimes as many as 30 ponies are at work in one pit, has been to find the animals in excellent health, well cared for, and most kindly treated, and I have seen nothing to indicate that any of these ponies had a grievance. The inexperienced sightseer may make his way along one of the main roads, expecting to come upon a large space with a crowd of miners altogether clearing it of coal, but such expectations will not be fulfilled, for he will find nothing but a series of roads or tunnels. When the visitor gets away from the main road, he finds he can no longer stand upright, but has to walk along with his body bent at right angles, and even then his guide will warn him occasionally to watch his head, or to be careful not to touch the roof at some particular place as it is just hanging. As he walks along, guided by the light of a small lamp, the visitor notices some cables hung up in a very temporary fashion on the walls of the road or from the roof, and he learns that these are conveying electricity to the coal-cutting machines. He need not ask why the cables are so loosely tied up, for he soon comes upon a fall, where the roof has come down and almost blocked the whole road, leaving the visitor to climb through a space that is only entitled to be called a hole. Here the cables have come down with the roof, but being slack and only insecurely fastened, they have offered no resistance to the fall, so that no damage has been done. The fall will soon be cleared away, and wooden props put in to secure the roof. In some mines where there are bad roofs, one finds in these roads whole regiments of wooden props, which continually require renewal, as they give way under the great pressure. From this side road, which the visitor has been walking along, there are a dozen narrow passages branching off at right angles to it, but there is no sign of coal cutting yet. These twelve roads, about sixteen yards apart, lead up to the coal seam. This seam, which could originally be seen along the wall of the side road, has had a number of slices cut off its whole length, and as each slice was taken out, the cavity was filled in, with stone rubbish taken from these passages, their roofs being cut away to give the miners room to draw in the hutches or trucks and get the coal away. The visitor enters one of these twelve passages, being informed that he is in road number eight, and as this seam has been worked for some time, he finds he has quite a long way to travel in a very cramped position, for it is difficult to avoid touching the roof with his back. On reaching the end of this road, he comes to what at first appears to be a dead end, and as he has come during the night time in order to see the electrical coal cutters at work, he finds no one in this road at all. He soon hears the hum of machinery in the distance, and on taking his lamp to the apparent dead end, he finds a narrow passage only 18 inches in height and 4 feet wide, running right past the end of his road. If the visitor cares to crawl or worm his way along this narrow passage, he will soon come on the end of number 7 road, and then a little further on the end of number 6 road, and so on, all these roads leading up to the face of this same seam. But as the noise of machinery is drawing nearer, and as everywhere it is pitch dark, he prefers to crawl back to the entrance of his road. Very soon he hears two men calling to each other occasionally over the hum of the machinery, and in a little he discerns a miner coming creeping along this narrow passage with a pick and shovel, clearing the way for the electric coal cutter. It is no easy task to use a pick and shovel while lying flat down with only 18 inches between the floor and the roof, just about the space below an ordinary chair seat. Close behind this man comes the coal cutting machine, sliding along on skids, and as the machine practically fills the whole space, the visitor cannot get a view of it till it comes opposite the end of his road. It is in this position that the accompanying photograph was taken. When the machine comes within sight and passes the end of his road, the visitor finds it is drawing itself along by means of a haulage rope, which is fixed at some distance along the passage, and is being gradually wound onto a drum in the machine. The machine, which is about eight feet long, is followed by another miner, who is controlling the working of it. From one side of the machine extends a long arm or drill fitted with small points or picks, and this arm or bar has both a rotary motion and a to-and-fro or saw-like motion at the same time. 
the bar or cutter is put into any desired position, and may be arranged to cut away the fire clay below the coal seam, or if, instead of fire clay, there is very hard rock or pavement beneath the coal, the cutter bar can be adjusted to cut along the top of the seam. This particular seam, which the visitor is watching, is being undercut, and what the machine really does is to cut away the foundation from the coal, the bar going in three and a half feet or even further. The coal cutter travels along the existing face of the coal seam, cutting away the foundation and leaving a space of less than five inches in height for three and a half feet in under the seam. And in one night, this machine, requiring only the attention of two men, will cut from 100 to 150 yards in length. Of course, the rate of progress is very dependent upon the space in which the miners have to manipulate the machine, for as new picks have to be put in several times during the night, this operation will take much longer if the miner has to do it while lying on his face, side or back. In a deeper seam, the miner can use his tools more easily, and the largest cut of which I have any direct evidence is one in a three-feet seam, where a length of 200 yards was undercut to a width of five and a half feet in ten hours' time, for six hours only of which the machine was actually working, which means a speed of more than a foot and a half per minute. The nature of the soil underlying the coal also determines the speed of the machine, and consequently the distance cut per night. When the coal-cutting machine has cut away the foundation from the coal, it has done the hardest part of the work. One can imagine a miner having to cut away the foundation of an 18-inch seam by hand while lying down. He would probably do five yards by the time the machine had done 150 yards, but it would never pay him nor his master, so that narrow seams were formerly left in the earth. They are now being worked out by these electric coal-cutters. The seam having been undercut by the machine, it only remains to bring the coal down. It may be that gravity has already brought it down during the night, but if not, the fireman will in the morning drill a few holes in the seam and blast it down, so that it only remains for the collier to clear away the coals, fill his hutches, and leave the seam clear at the end of the day for the machine to work in during the night. As already explained, the cavity between the roads is filled up each day with stone rubbish. That is to say, the whole space formerly occupied by the slice of coal that has been removed is now filled in with rubbish, leaving only the continuation of these branch roads through it. When the slice is cut away, the stone rubbish is not, of course, built in close up to the seam, for sufficient room must be left to let the electric coal cutter work right along the face. If the visitor now creeps along the face of the coal seam, he finds himself in a passage about four feet wide, but only 18 inches from floor to roof, and as he goes along he passes the ends of these branch roads, any of which will lead him down to the main road. While I say that the electric coal cutter has done the hard work, I do not mean to belittle the remaining work of the collier, for it is no light task to work in a narrow underground tunnel all day. Again, one has to remember that whereas the collier formerly sent up about two tonnes of coal per day, he has now to send up four or five tonnes of the coal cut by these electrical machines. He cannot expect to be paid the same price per tonne as formerly, as his master has expended money in cutting the coal for him by the electrical machines, but his wage remains as good as before. Some people will picture the paying off of a large number of miners whenever these labour-saving appliances are introduced into a mine. But on putting this question to the manager of the Holy Town Collieries, Scotland, I learned that this was not the case. The output of the pits is greatly increased, and a fourth pit has been opened at this particular colliery, affording full employment for all their hands. Some idea is given of the work underground by the accompanying photograph. It is curious to watch two men entering what is little more than a crack in the earth, and taking with them a powerful machine, which is receiving power from the surface by means of an electric cable. The taking of this photograph was by no means an easy task, not only because of the very confined space in which to produce sufficient light, but also owing to the intensely black surroundings. I am indebted to Mr Diesner of Glasgow for his kind assistance in securing what at first seemed an impossible picture, 
and also to Mr Stewart of Pollockshaws for aiding me in making preliminary experiments. In view of the report of the Royal Commission on Coal, 1905, it is interesting to note that old mines are now being reopened, and narrow seams that formerly could not be worked are now being cut, at a profit, by electrical machinery. End of chapter 26